throne room of God, the headquarters of the entire universe. There is no more spectacular sight in all the Bible. And while the throne room is depicted elsewhere in the Bible with some very interesting aspects and characters, in Revelation its depiction is very unique for some very interesting reasons, and we will talk about them on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason, the website behind it all, as always, is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study, our verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation, and we are going to experience a dramatic shift in scenery in uh, in this chapter when we were going into chapter 4. Now, previous to this, chapters 1 through 3, we had a very uh, terrestrial perspective, very earthly perspective from chapter 1 where John gets his vision on the Isle of Patmos. And then Revelation chapters 2 and 3 were the seven letters to seven churches. Again, we're very much bound down here to earth, to the churches of Jesus Christ here on earth and the history of the churches on earth. But after the church age and after these uh, the letters of these churches, again, the scene shifts dramatically from earth to heaven and we get a glimpse into not just heaven but to again the throne room of god the place where all the action happens and we're going to get glimpses of this throne room again elsewhere in the book of revelation but the very first depiction is here in chapter four so let's just get started by reading chapter four and we will get through the entire chapter in this episode. This will probably be one of the very few episodes where we get through an entire chapter um, in, in one sitting. But let's just get started by reading well, Revelation chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders, sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which, were, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And that's it. That is Revelation chapter 4. A very amazing but very strange passage that we're going to need to explore in depth in order to see what all of this stuff means. So let's just break down these verses. Chapter 1. 
After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, there is a lot in just this sentence. After these things, the word that is translated is a Greek word translated after these things. That word is metatauta. Now, if you've been following along, you should remember that word from our, our study of chapter one. And one of the things I said about uh, chapter one, one of the great things about uh, that chapter is in it, Jesus gives an outline of the entire book of Revelation. He tells John to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be after these things. Now, the things that John had seen was the, was the division of chapter one. So it's at the end of chapter one where Jesus says, write the things you have seen. So he wants John to write the vision he had just seen of Jesus and the seven lampstands, which represents the seven churches. Then he wanted John to write about the things which are and the things at, at the present time, which was the church age. And for our, from our perspective, the, the, those are the things that are the churches. And then he said he wanted him to write the things which shall be after these things. That word again, after these things is metatauta. So when what after what things? After the church, after the things that are, the things that are, are the church, the church age. So this designates, this sentence, after these things, metatauta, that should be a signpost, a designation that we are now in the third part of the outline, the past which John saw in chapter one, the present, which is the church age. And now we are firmly in the future from chapter four on, we are now in the future. The, according to the outline, metatauta after these things. So after what things? The church age. So this, whatever happens here is happening after the church age. And we talked about how the church age is going to end in the last episode. And here we are. This happens after the church age. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, again, following along, this is a this should be very familiar to you because we just saw in the previous chapter, specifically in the letter to Philadelphia, they were told, Jesus told them very early on in that letter that he has set before them an open door. Now, is this the same open door? Is, are they related? I believe they are. Why? Because, again, this, it just happened. We just talked about it a, a few verses ago in chapter three. So I believe this is that same door. And I believe this is a doorway that to heaven that is promised to the church at Philadelphia. And let's continue reading. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place metatauta after this, after these things. So again, following along with what we've talked about at the Church of Philadelphia, not only did Jesus put an open door in front of them, he also told them that because of their faithfulness and, and being the true church, being his true bride, he would keep them from the hour of trial that was coming on the earth. He was going to keep them out of the so-called tribulation. So now he, this open door is here again. There is a voice saying like a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you what's going to happen in the future. So this is after the church age, a door is open. John, who is a Christian is told to come up there. And then the metatauta, the after these things, the future is going to happen. So I think this is clearly saying that the, the church is going to go through this doorway and then they will, they will, um, and I think we're going to find out in the next uh, several episodes that the, the tribulation is going to be starting soon and, they, and the, the church, the true church of Christ will be kept out of it. Now this gets into the so-called rapture. And, and, and just so you know that I'm, I'm not just, you know, coming up with this out of nowhere, there's a few other, other areas here that speak to the possibility of the rapture. And I don't want to, I'm going to start with the rapture next week. And we're going to get into it in depth. We're going to spend at least two episodes talking about it. But I want to quote one of the verses, a couple of the verses that talk about 
what the so-called rapture is. And again, I'm not going to go into detail because we have two more episodes for that. But um, one of the uh, key verses that talks about the rapture is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, 51 through 53. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Another verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So these two verses are classically depicted as rapture verses. And what do they have? They have a trumpet sounding and they have a voice calling the church or whoever's going to be raptured is calling them up there. And what do we have here in chapter four, verse one? We have a trumpet and then we have a voice calling a Christian, in this case, John, up there. So I think this pretty strongly relates to the rapture, whatever it is, if there even is a rapture. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that. But I think there's a reason to believe that this is related to the rapture. We will talk about it uh, more starting in the next episode. Okay, verse two. We're making great progress here. Uh, Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So uh, immediately he was in the spirit. This is another... I think another reason to believe that this is the is is, being, is depicted the rapture because in, in the rapture you are people are supernaturally taken in spirit from one place to another. So John, being a Christian, is transported here um, into the throne room in the spirit. So immediately, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, as we just talked about in those last verses, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. That word "one" is capitalized. It is. It is a de- depicting divinity. This is God. This is Jehovah who sits on the throne. This is the throne of Jehovah, and he is sitting on the throne. He is the king of the universe. He's on the throne. Verse 3, And he who sat there, God, was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. What What is a jasper and sardius stone? They are essentially precious jewels. Uh, John describes them that way. He describes God as looking like a precious jewel. What exactly do they look like? We don't know because, unfortunately, the depictions of these stones seem to change throughout the Bible. I think it's uh, as we it's different eras. They call them different. They have them depicted different. Some people say the jasper is like a diamond. Some other people say it's more of a bluish stone. Some people say the sardius is a bluish stone or a yellowish stone. And it has been depicted that way back and forth. So we don't know because over time these words have have come to mean different stones. But they're precious jewels. They're they're gemstones. Why is uh, John describing him this way? Not because God looks like a rock. But because they're light. These are the most precious, beautiful things John can possibly describe. And so he uses those, he can possibly imagine, and he uses those things to describe God because God is light. The Bible says clearly that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So what John is seeing is light. God is that light, that energy, that creative force that created the entire universe. And that's what John sees. And so in, in continuing on, it says that there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And we know emerald, that's green, that stays pretty consistent. But the whole point is that the throne room is full of light. There's light there and no darkness at all. There can't be any darkness. Darkness doesn't exist there. And this goes back to a, a conundrum we, we talked about early on in some early podcasts and blogs. Uh, some folks say that, you know, you can't have light without darkness and you can't have good without evil. They need each other to exist. That's not true. That's actually dualism, which is occultic and satanic. It's, it's kind of... It, it's, it's the satanic folks, the demons and the fallen angels. It's their way of trying to justify their existence to their adherents, the occultists. But it's not true. You don't need a balance. You don't need a, a dark to have light. Light can exist without darkness. Darkness needs light to exist. 
evil needs good to exist. Why? Because light is that energy and it's, it's eternal and it's there. Darkness is the measurement of the lack of light. So you can have light without darkness, but you can't have darkness without light. You can't have evil without good. Why? Because good is that which creates in the long term. We gave the definition of good way back uh, in the early days of faith by reason. You can go look it up. But evil destroys. Well, how can you have something to destroy if nothing's been created? So you can create infinitely, but you can't destroy infinitely because eventually you rise up to destroy. So good can exist without evil. Light can exist without darkness. This throne room is all light. So what John is seeing is just the most beautiful, spectacular light you can possibly imagine. All right, verse four, and here's where it starts to get really interesting. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Who are these 24 elders? There are a couple of possibilities that are popular. One of them is that these are, are angels, um, you know, other, other Elohim, other uh, angelic beings who are in some type of senior position. And that's possible, but, uh, but I don't think that's who they are. I think there are a number of reasons to believe they are something else. And the other, the something else that most people, that many uh, commentators believe they are, is that these 24 elders represent believers. Why 24? I'm not sure exactly. The Bible isn't explicit. The theory is that, that the 24 represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 believing uh, tribes of Israel, the, the Jews, and the other and 12 disciples who represent the, the church. So you have Israel and the church represented 12 and 12, 24. Interesting thing, by the way, and we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to, to, uh, to chapter 5, but after chapter 3 of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5, things get very, very Jewish. The first uh, three chapters of Revelation, uh, they're very much, it's very Greek, very, very um, Gentile-ish with the, with the church and with the depictions and things that John sees. But after chapter 3, things get very, very Jewish. In fact, some commentators believe that the first three chapters of Revelation were written in originally in Greek, and the, the rest of the uh, Revelation is written in Hebrew, or possibly Aramaic, but, but, but in Hebrew, and then translated back into Greek. And you'll see some evidence of that when we get to chapter 5. So, so if, if the 24 elders are believers, why do I believe that? Well, there are several reasons, and some of them are in this verse, and some of them I will, uh, I'll talk about in a second. One thing is that they're clothed in white robes. White robes, we talked about this before, white robes are a depiction of righteousness. Jesus promises believers white robes. He promises them to uh, the church at Sardis, those who overcome the, the sins of Sardis, he gives them white robes. Where Jesus promises us white robes throughout the uh, the New Testament. Now, that, that in itself doesn't mean that they're believers, because angels can wear white robes too. That's fine, but it's it's one more piece of circumstantial evidence to add to my case. The other thing is they had crowns of gold on their head, and those um, crowns are crowns of royalty. And you would imagine that angels would not have crowns of royalty necessarily in heaven because God is the king, and if he's the king, why else would anyone, why would his angelic beings also have crowns? Now, who does have crowns? Christians are supposed to have crowns because Christians, we're told that we will rule and reign along with Jesus. We are heirs of God heir and co-heirs with Christ. Christ is the son of God. He's the son of the king, gets everything the king has. He has royalty. And, and we being co-heirs, we being the bride of Christ, would also have that royal dominion. So it makes sense that we would have crowns if these are believers, that these 24 elders would have crowns if they are believers. Again, 
not 100% because you could say, well, maybe these are angels who have a, a certain level of authority on earth, which I believe many angels, some angels do. So that's not the, that, that's a good reason to believe that they're believers, but there's an, but it's not conclusive and other people have argued against that. One of the main reasons I believe these 24 elders are, um, are believers is because of something that actually happens in the next chapter. So we're going to jump ahead really quickly to uh, chapter five, which you know, we'll talk about in a few weeks. But in chapter five, there's a um, starting verse eight. I want to read this to you really quickly. Now, when he had taken the scroll, and we'll talk about that scroll this later. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. This is what is important, the song they sing. And the song is, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And they have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. Well, those two us's really can only be believers. You have redeemed us. Who? Who did Jesus redeem? He didn't die to redeem angels. He only died to redeem his church. So when it says us there, it can't be angels. It has to be believers. And then in verse 10, it says, you have made us kings and priests to our God. That is a promise that is made to believers. Now, to be fair, there are some translations of, of the Bible, the, the Masoretic text, for example, that doesn't say you made us kings and priests. It says you made them kings and priests to our God. And those people who believe that these 24 elders are actually angels use that verse and say, you know, these angels are talking about believers. You have made them kings and priests. Okay, fair enough. However, that first us, when it says you have redeemed us, that's not disputed. That word us is in every translation. You have redeemed us to our God by your blood. And again, angels were not redeemed by blood. Angels weren't redeemed at all. If you're a fallen angel, you have there's no redemption for you. Jesus did not become an angel and die for your sins. He only did that for human beings. So I believe these are very strong reasons to believe these 24 elders represent believers, the Old Testament and New Testament believers, the church and believing Israel. All right, let's move. Verse five, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Um, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So um, lightnings, thunderings, and voices. You hear this a lot. There's apparently the throne room of God is a very, very noisy place. You'll, again, we'll see this throne room uh, in several places throughout Revelation. And there's always lightning, thunders, voices. You hear that quite a bit. So it's, it's a lot of things are happening up there. But here's what's interesting. The seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. They are the seven spirits of God. Here's another reason to believe that the church is in heaven at this point because we saw those seven lamps before. Those seven lamps in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus clearly says they are the seven churches. And if the seven churches represent all of churches, all the church age, all seven eras of the church age, then the church is very, very clearly in heaven right after the church age and uh, prior to the tribulation. This is one of the areas that the pre-trib uh, rapture folks, and we'll talk about them in a couple episodes, believe that the rapture occurs before the so-called tribulation period. There are others who dispute that and they have, and the people who dispute this pre-tribulation rapture, they have actually some very good reasons to dispute it. And we, again, we'll talk about that in detail right now, but I just wanted to throw that out there because uh, we'll, we will uh, revisit it. And of course, there are also the seven spirits of God and the seven spirits of God, that's a, that's a, a term for the Holy Spirit who indwells the church. So again, these are reasons to believe that the church 
is at this point in heaven or in, in, at this throne room. Um, and verse six, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, what does this mean? Well, in order to understand this, you have to go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the to the of uh, the ancient temple, the the temp, the, um, the Israelite temple, the temple of God. One thing that you have to understand about the temple is that the temple is actually a model, a representation of this throne room. Why does if you look in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God gives his instructions for how to set up the temple and tents when they're doing the wilderness run, wandering and as an actual building when they get to the promised land that was originally built by Solomon and rebuilt um, after the Babylonian captivity and remodeled by uh, King Herod right before the time of, of Jesus's birth. This throne room is a model of, I mean, so excuse me, the, the great temple, the Jewish temple is a model of the, the throne room of God. And before you can enter the Holy of Holies, which is uh, basically a, like the, the throne, the, the inner sanctum, the, the actual throne of God is represented by the area called the Holy of Holies. Before you can get there, there is a basin of water that you have to wash yourself. Why? Because before you go into the, um, the temple, excuse me, to the Holy of Holies in the temple, the priest would do his sacrifices. He would sacrifice the animals that the, the Israelites would, would bring to sacrifice for their sins. So that they would bring, you know, bulls and, and goats and lambs. The priest would slaughter them. And of course, he would get you know pretty dirty. He would have blood and whatnot all over him. And before he entered into the Holy of Holies, the main section of the throne room, he had to wash off all that stuff, all that sin in this basin of water. This sea of glass-like crystal represents that basin of water. This is where all sin is washed away before it can get to the throne. So it has to be, again, so it's verse 6, it's before the throne. So no sin can come to the throne. This is where all sin is washed away. So I think that's pretty interesting, pretty cool. So um, around the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion. The seven, second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. What in the world is, uh, is this all about? What are these living creatures? Depending if you have an older um, translation of the Bible, like the original King James, we'll call them four beasts. Well, I think that word uh, beast is actually the word zoa, which really means just a, a living creature, some type of, of living animal, as opposed to a beast, which we'll, we'll start seeing beasts depicted in, in an evil way later in Revelation, like the Antichrist is called the beast. That word is therion, which again means a wild, ferocious beast. This word zoa just means a living creature. So who are these creatures? Well, we, we see them um, earlier in the Bible, in the, in Ezekiel, and we also see them depicted as well in Isaiah. But in Ezekiel chapter 1, we see what I believe are these same creatures. But each one of these creatures has all four faces. And here in, um, in Revelation, each one of the four creatures has, has a different face. A face of a man, a face of a flying eagle, the face of a, of a calf or a cow, and uh, the face of a lion. In Ezekiel, all the four uh, uh, living creatures have all the four faces. So I, I think these are still the same creatures. They're just depicted in a different way, probably to, to so that John has an easier time uh, deciphering deciphering them to us so that when he explains it, it's a little more plain. And there are actually reasons that they're separate here. And I believe that these four creatures represent all of life on earth. And that these these creatures are actually, and they're, oh, they're full of eyes. It says there are, there are um, eyes all over them. 
And why do they have eyes? Because they, they're watchers. That is the uh, a name for these creatures. They're called the watchers. Another name for them are the cherubim. That's who these creatures are. Cherubim. What is a cherubim? Now, when you hear the word cherub, don't think of the depiction of a little fat flying baby that you see in um, a lot of medieval paintings. That's not what these cherubim look like. Obviously, these creatures look nothing like a little chubby baby. These cherubim are the throne guardians. They are high-ranking angels, possibly the highest-ranking angels, these, these four creatures. And again, their job is to guard the throne room of God. How do we know that? Because remember, if you look at your Old Testament, the Holy of Holies has the in the in the Jewish temple has the Ark of the Covenant. What's on the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. The cherubim are on the top of the on top of the Ark of the Covenant covenant, and their wings create the mercy seat, which is the throne room. So these cherubim are the um, the guardians of the throne of God, and they are depicted here. Now, here is something very, very, very interesting about these uh, cherubs and the way they are presented. If you notice, they, they, they present all of life on earth with one exception. So you have the one cherubim has the face of a man, which represents humanity. So this cherub it represents human life. There's another cherub who has a face like a, a, a cow or an ox that represents herbivores, all the animals that eat plants for um, to, to, to live and survive and thrive. Then you have one like a lion. This represents the animal kingdom of the carnivores, lions and <laughs> tigers and bears. Oh my. <laughs> and you know, all other meat eating animals. And then you have one like an eagle representing all the flying, uh, animals, the bird life, avian. Now, do you notice there's a group missing? You have humans, you have plant eaters, you have meat eaters, and you have birds. There is a large group of animals missing. What group of what group is missing? What group is not represented? That would be animals, cold-blooded animals with scales, fish, and reptiles. Why are they missing? Because I believe there is another cherub who who was there. It would only make sense that, that there would be a cherub to represent um, cold-blooded, um, scaled animals. What where what happened to this cherub? This cherub, I believe, was kicked out of heaven. This cherub. I believe is a creature is the entity that we call Satan, formerly Lucifer, and his fall was talked about in um, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. This is the fallen one. The in, how is Satan described? He is described. We'll get to this in chapter 12 of Revelation. He is described as a dragon. What is a dragon? It's a reptile. What tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? Well, the the, the Nachash. The Nakash means a shining one, but it also came to mean serpent. And the reason it meant serpent is because I believe that Satan has serpentine characteristics. Satan was a cherub. He is called in he's called the anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28. Satan, Lucifer, was a cherub. He was a cherub that represented reptiles and fish, scaled animals, and he was he's no longer in heaven because he was kicked out when he rebelled. He was, in fact, not only was he any cherub. He was the anointed cherub that covers. He was the he was the head cherub. He was, you know, the second, he, he was the greatest of all creation before man was created. That's Satan, and he's missing. So I think that's very, very interesting. And again, we're going to encounter him when we get to well, we'll encounter him explicitly in Revelation chapter 12, but I think we'll we'll talk about him a lot when we get to Revelation chapter 6. And by the way, another little note here, and I think we'll talk about this more as we get through Revelation. Another reason to believe that the, the representation 
of the fish and cold-blooded animals and, and, and reptiles has a, has a, a undistinguished place of, of disrepute in regards to, to, to uh, their position with God is if you look at how they are represented elsewhere in the Bible, the sea, the oceans are never spoken of positively. They're always negative. The sea is a place where things are bound. The sea is an area of darkness. The, the sea is a place of chaos. You know, in, in Genesis chapter one, where it said that darkness moved upon, you know, with, with, you know, when there was nothing but darkness on the face of the deep, on the face of the oceans. I believe that when Satan was judged and the angels who fell with him, who, who may also have had serpentine char characteristics or reptilian characteristics, when they were judged by God, they were judged in the waters. How did God um, judge the world when the Nephilim were on the earth who were the descendants of these uh, fallen angels and their, their intercourse with women? They were drowned in the sea. The flood came and washed them all away. In when uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is an area, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, I don't have a whole lot of time to talk about all this, but the Sea of Galilee, Galilee is an area of a lot of demonic activity. If you notice, where did Jesus cast out demons? It was always in and around Galilee because at Galilee, at Galilee is an area called Mount Bashan or Mount Hermon, and that's where the original angels fell to earth and, and they did the mischief in Genesis chapter six. But there's, a, there's an area, it's an area of a lot of demonic activity. And when Jesus walked on the water in the Sea of Galilee, he was showing his authority over the creatures in the water. And this is not just physical, it's spiritual. Remember the supernatural point of view. You have to look at it from both ways. You have to look at what has, is happening on our physical world and also is happening spiritually. Physically, Jesus was walking on water. Spiritually, he was showing his authority over the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee regularly has storms with 30-foot waves. But the Sea of Galilee is pretty small. It's a very small, it's, a, it's not a sea, it's a lake. There's no reason that a lake that size should have 30-foot waves. There's demonic activity there. Remember, the other time Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee and performed a miracle was when the ocean, when the sea was raging, when this Lake of Galilee was raging. And what did Jesus do? He showed his authority by saying, peace be still. He calmed the waters down. He was, again, showing his authority over these demonic creatures that um, inhabit the Sea of Galilee. And, and again, jumping way, way ahead, when we get to the New Jerusalem, the heaven which we will dwell, the Bible is very clear that there is no more sea on the New, on the, the new Jerusalem and on the New Earth. It says there, there were to be a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea. Why? Because the sea is a place where these evil entities are bound because of their because they represent uh, you know scaled life fish and reptiles they won't be there anymore there's no need for a sea so again getting ahead of myself a little stuff to chew on just keep that in the back of your mind we will revisit it again all right let's start wrapping this up um verse eight again the four living creatures each having six wings were full of eyes around and within and by the way we always think of angels as having wings and they're rarely depicted that way. In fact, the only angels that are depicted as having wings, the only angelic beings that are depicted as having wings are the cherubim and the seraphim. Even so, you just gotta get out of your minds all these medieval paintings and all the popular depictions of angels with big bird wings. That's just, just not biblical. Only the seraphim have wings and the cherubim have wings. They don't have two wings, they have six. And nowhere does it say they're, they're bird wings. Other animals have wings. Maybe they have insect-like wings. Maybe they have wings that are more like bats. But I don't, and, or, or maybe they're just things that look like wings and that's how John is describing them. So just wanted to put that out there. 
and they have eyes with, around within because they're the watchers. They are they see everything. They're in charge. They have the authority over the throne of God, and they have authority over all the different aspects of life, uh, human life, carnivores, herbivores, um, and and and, and uh, avian birds. And they do not rest day or night, saying, "Holy, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come." Holy, holy, holy. Why? Well, probably because there are three of them: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It could just mean that you know you're just emphasizing how holy he is, but those three holies could also be a reason to believe in the Trinity, which of course we do believe that God is one God expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns down before the throne. Now you get a little bit of John's writing style here. John is very... Uh, didactic in his writing style. You see it in, in, in Revelation. You'll see it in his gospel. He says the same things over and over again. John is a teacher. He wants to make sure it's, in, it's ground into your mind that he lives forever and ever. And this is God. He wants you to make sure that you know that. And, it, and they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist. So in heaven, in the throne room of God, you have worship. You have these these 24 elders casting their crowns before God. Why? Because God is the one who gave it to me. They're, they're saying, God, you gave us authority. We're giving that authority back to you because it's all yours. You created everything and by your will, everything exists. So this is just a magnificent depiction of the worship of the glory of God, that it is just this beautiful um, picture of all the light of, of the magnificence of God and how there's just a constant state of worship. And worship basically means that you are bowing your head and acknowledging something greater than you. And these these uh, living creatures, these 24 elders, they are acknowledging the greatness of God and giving him the honor and respect he's due by being in a position of worship to him. And whenever you step before the throne of God, which you do when you pray, that's why we get on our knees. Because we are showing God that reverential respect that you created all things and all things subsist because of you and we are bowing our heads in, in, in worship, and that's what happens in the throne room of God. Okay, so that's, that's going to wrap that up. Um, you know, some really interesting stuff happening. As I said, it's very unique here in Revelation. We see, we see the throne room of God in Ezekiel. We see it in Isaiah. We see it other places. But this is the only place where the 24 elders are. Why? Because before this, the, in, in the Old Testament and before the end of the church age, the 24 elders who represent the church aren't in heaven because... <laughs> they haven't got to heaven yet but now we're in the future metatauta after these things we are seeing the future and in the future after the church age the church is in heaven and that brings us squarely into a preview of the next couple of episodes and it is going to be fun it's going to be controversial it's going to be epic because we are going to be talking about the rapture the rapture is without a doubt the most controversial topic in all of eschatology and all of the study of end times the rapture is the most controversial and by controversial i mean you have people who are diehard in their position on the rapture there's some people who say there's no such thing as a rapture and there's people who absolutely swear by the idea of the rapture some people say the rapture is not biblical there's nothing biblical about it it was made up um maybe a few centuries ago and there are other people who say nope nope the rapture has been around for a while it's, it's been there since since the beginning even in the old testament and so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about whether or not the rapture is biblical. And then, we, in the, so in the next episode, we're going to talk about whether or not there actually is a rapture. What does a rapture mean? Was it just made up of a 
few hundred years ago, or you know, is, is it a sound biblical doctrine? Because honestly, it's a pretty preposterous document, uh, doctrine when you think about it. It's the idea that at some point in the future, we're going to people are going to be zapped away to heaven. We're just going to disappear. I, I don't know if we're if our clothes are going to be on when we, when we get zapped away, or if there or if there's going to be nothing piles of clothes around um, when 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 this happens. But it, it's a very crazy thought to think about people just automatic just suddenly disappearing and and being in heaven. But the the most controversial aspect of the rapture is when it recur, occurs relative to the so-called tribulation period. And people, again, stake their claims to a position, whether it's before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation. And you will find Christians behaving very unchristian-like when they relate to each other. The people who believe that it's before the tribulation can't stand the people who believe it's after, and they both can't stand the people who think it's in the middle. And it, it's just, it gets really, really brutal, some of the attacks on that, that, that Christians have on each other because this is a, it, it's, it's a very, very controversial doctrine. There's a lot of dogma and pride involved. And we're going to get into it. We're going to break it all down. And I'm going to give you my thoughts on the rapture. And they're fairly unique. I've, I've only heard one or two other people take the same view that I take on it. And that doesn't mean it's right, but it's going to, there's something in this to offend everyone. So trust me, if you have not been offended yet by the, the, Thyatira study or the Sardis study or even the last study when I talked about the end of the church. If you haven't been offended yet, oh, I promise you, I promise you no matter what your take is on the rapture, whether you think it's real or not, whether you think it's pre, mid or post tribulation, I promise you are going to be offended by something that I say about the rapture. So it's something to offend everyone. And again, we'll get started next week when we talk about what the rapture is and whether or not it's truly biblical. All right. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. for watching. Excuse me. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, please follow uh, Faith by Reason by going to faithbyreason.net, putting your your information, your email into the right navigation bar, and you'll you will get notifications. Please uh, subscribe here on YouTube. Please hit the subscribe uh, button. Please hit the notification bell so you'll know when the new episodes come up every week. And I will talk to you next week when we explore the Rapture. And again, it's going to be, oh, it's going to be so much fun. I love controversy and it, I, I can't wait. <laughs> See you next week.